Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is Lesson 12 on our study of First Thessalonians with my friend and Bible teacher, Jeff Verdorn. So glad that we're continuing this. I'm trying to buy a baker's dozen out of them. I don't think we're going to get to Lesson 13 in First Thessalonians, but we are going to plow ahead into Second Thessalonians if we conclude this today. We're going to actually spend... Possibly all of three hours looking, or all of one hour looking at three verses. <laughs> Jeff, I'm not signing you up for three hours today. Not not today. Not for the last three not verses, the, anyway. But possibly one hour with three verses. Yes, we'll have to see. I think we'll, we'll have a little see. bit of time left, okay. and uh, we got some wrap-up of kind of the whole book, and then maybe some introductory things of Second uh, Thessalonians, so we'll see how far we get today. Okay, can we offer uh, everyone a little bit of review just to get us up yeah. and running? Absolutely. So okay. last time we were looking in First Thessalonians 5, we were at verse 19, which says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. And we use this verse to do a actually quite a long discussion of what I call the abiding principle. This is based on John 15, where Jesus is the vine and we are the branches and we are to abide in Christ, the true vine, and he will bear the fruit. We are are just a fruit hanger. We're the branch. And if we want power in our lives in this world, we simply abide in Christ and he is the one that bears the fruit. So this abiding is, is it's just like saying, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and trust in him with all of your heart. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Uh, set your mind on things above. Store, tr- store up your treasures in heaven. Um, God tells us many, many, uh, in many, many ways Love God first. That's the first and greatest commandment, right? Mm-hmm. That's the abiding in God, and then He puts, He produces the fruit in our lives. So, at, by not putting out the spirits, or by putting out the spirits' fire, what we're really doing is we're taking our eyes off of God. So we had a long conversation about that in verse twenty. Well, Jeff, yeah, just if I may interrupt, uh, let's talk about the difference between being a fruit hanger and the other place would be, I'm going to go out and make some fruit. Yeah, I think... Because I'm lo- ambitious for a, the Lord. Well, I know. I think we tend to want to make fruit on our own power. I think we're pretty good at making plastic fruit in the church. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of times you, you look at a bowl of fruit on a table and you have to look at it really close to see if it's plastic or not. I mean, a lot of this stuff looks really real anymore. And I think it's the same way in the church. Um, I think we can get busy doing things for God instead of just trusting in God and letting him do his work in and through us. That's We're actually going to talk about that quite a bit today Good. Um, as we get into the last few verses of chapter 5. So verse 23 we also talked about for quite a while last time, and that is this. It says, May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we use this verse to look at the three-part nature of man, spirit, soul, and body. Uh, This is actually, I think, a very important understanding for the Christian to understand. 
And so often in my classes or in my studies, I'll bring up this concept that we as people are made body, soul, and spirit. We have three parts to us. Just like God, by the way, has three parts. God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So too, we are body, soul, and spirit. And there are so many concepts in the Bible that I don't think, if you don't have an understanding that of these three parts, you're not going to understand so many things in Scripture. For example, even in the garden, when God said to Adam, if you eat of this fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Well, his body didn't die that day, and his soul didn't die that day. So what died that day? His spirit is what died that day. His innermost being, which was made united with God, God's spirit was united with Adam's spirit. That death he experienced when he sinned, when he fell, was that separation from God. God withdrew his spirit from Adam, and he died spiritually that day. When then we believe in Christ and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and we become alive, what part of us becomes alive? Well, it's the spiritual part of us. Remember, uh, Jesus himself said to Nicodemus, spirit gives birth to spirit. He makes us alive spiritually. That's what being born again is all about. So that spiritual part of us is we need to understand this three-part nature of man so that these things make sense. When God says that he's made us holy, for example, holy and blameless in his sight, we are holy in his sight, but many Christians look at their actions and their behaviors and their thought life and whatever and say, well, I'm not acting very holy, so I must not be holy. Well, they're missing the division that you've been made holy spiritually. Now we need to work on making our soul, our decision-making and our our thoughts and so on, we need to work on making that holy as well. So we miss that divide uh, that God has declared us and made us holy. Now we need to live out that holiness in soul and in our actions and in our, in our body. And so that's still our struggle today. And then finally, of course, we need to understand that there is a future part of salvation um, that is glorification, that our current body is a temporary dwelling, an earth tent, Paul says, and that one day we will receive a new, glorified, eternal body, and that's where we will dwell in the house of Lord forever in our eternal glorified body. So we we use that verse to to do a short study on body, soul, spirit. I love that reality, Jeff. I never tire of hearing that, that we will have a glorified body in his presence through all, all of eternity. Yeah, so Christ is the only one today that has received his glorified body. That's what he was resurrected in his mm-hmm. perfect, glorified, resurrected body. And just as he is, so too we will be made like him. So he shall uh, transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorified body. And that's a promise in Scripture. It's going to happen. In fact, in Romans it says we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Mm we will receive a glorified body. God has promised it. Exciting to think earthly people saw the glorified body of Jesus. Oh, Amazing. And, you know, and, and we're, we're not going to do a glorified study here, but think of the things he did in his glorified bodies. I, I mean, he, he still ate, he still touched people, yeah. uh, and yet he disappeared uh, from the 
two men on the road to Emmaus, and he appeared in a locked room. Yep. Um, he ascended up to heaven. I mean, the laws of physics are not going to apply to our glorified body the way that they apply to our physical body. Right. And just think, I mean, I can't even think how incredible that's going to be. Yeah, amazing. All right. So, so let's go start up and pick up on verse 25. We're actually in the final greetings, uh, but I've got some other kind of side notes here that I want to work in on these last few verses, so it's going to take a while. But if you would read 25, 26, and 27. I will. If you just joined us, Jeff Verdorn is my guest. We're continuing our study in the book of Thessalonians. We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'm going to start reading in verse 25, and I think I'm just going to read the first verse. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. You know, Paul is asking for prayer. Um, I have a friend, and he has a line. He says, little prayer, little power. Much prayer, much power. And I think oftentimes we forget to pray. And here Paul is asking the Thessalonians to pray for him. So Paul has him. He prays for others. You see it at the end of all of his letters that he is constantly praying for those that he has uh, that he knows and that he ministers with. Uh, but it's interesting here, he's actually pr- say pray for us as well. So um, I like that. 26. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. This one is interesting. Um, it's, it's funny how you can find so much on the internet these days about certain passages. This is one of them that has a lot of different, like, what is this? What is this all about? And Paul actually ends uh, or talks about this idea of a holy kiss in multiple places in his letters. Here in Romans 16, he talks about a holy kiss in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 13. He also talks about a holy kiss. Interesting, Peter also talks about it. He says this in 1 Peter 5. He says, greet one another with the kiss of love. So I think they're talking about the same thing. So what is a holy kiss? Well, I think it's called a holy kiss, or like Peter says, a kiss of love, to distinguish it from the other kind of kiss, a sexual kiss, if you will. This is not a sexual kiss. This is a holy kiss. So the contrast, I think, is clear. A holy kiss versus a a kiss that you would give to your wife or your girlfriend or whatever. It is no different than, I think a holy kiss is no different than two people who would hug each other today. If you see a brother in the Lord and you happen to be the same sex, you can you often will hug them today. In our culture, we don't normally kiss somebody, uh, male or female, when we greet them. Mm-hmm. It's, but in other cultures, this is often a term or, or an expression of an endearment, just like we would shake hands or hug somebody today. In other cultures, they might kiss somebody on the cheek or even on both cheeks when they greet somebody, even of the same sex, if they know them, care for them, love them, and right. so on. I think that's all that a holy kiss is. Show someone that you are that they are endeared to you. Show them that you love them. And so this holy kiss was probably the tradition of kissing another Christian, whether male or female, probably on the cheek, although Scripture doesn't tell us, but that's what I'm going to go with because the thought of kissing another guy just, yeah. All right, so 
But anyway, we, we're looking at this as uh, something, a warm affection that's done righteously in recognition that believers are brothers and sisters in the family of God. Exactly. Yeah. It's so a as, lovely gesture. It is. So if you would do a warm handshake with somebody, if you would do a handshake and the, you know, kind of the male slap on the shoulder yeah, kind of thing yeah. that we got that going. Or even I have guys that are close to me that I will hug every time that I see them yeah. and I'll give them a, a big hug. And I think that is what Paul is describing here only in, in the first century, they would express it in a holy kiss. Mm-hmm. All right, Jeff, I, I, I'm just wondering the fact that he says, greet all God's people with a holy kiss, uh, is that, would they be showing a difference with people who were not in the family of God? Would they be not giving that, that kind of that warm greeting? Yeah, I mean, think about how you would greet an acquaintance. I get it. And how you would uh, greet a family member yeah. or a brother in the Lord that you've known for decades or whatever. So yeah. I think we I think we do this today within the church and within our acquaintances. Okay. Uh, 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 there's a, always a difference between kind of an acquaintance handshake and a brotherly kind of, hey, come here, buddy, you yeah. know, kind of thing. Come here, you knucklehead. Yeah, that one, yeah, all right. <laughs> 28, verse 28. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So this is the passage that we are going to spend some time on. Okay. All right. Let's take a little break. When we come back, we can, and we can start fresh Perfect. with a, a new uh, chunk of time. Jeff Verdorn is my guest. We're going to continue our study in 1 Thessalonians. You're always welcome to send in a comment or question if you have one. 877-933-2484 is the text line. You can also... Uh, email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. You can check that out as well. Be right back. Hi, this is Bill Arnold. You might be the kind of person that goes to Paris and still listens to Faith Radio on the app. Or you might be more like the person that goes into the next room in your apartment and listens. The good news is, is using the app is just as easy in both places. Downloading the free app is crazy easy. Just text the word app to 877-933-2484 and click the link. And if you happen to be in Paris, there is a really nice little coffee shop not far from the Eiffel Tower that serves a really nice chocolate biscotti. I'm back with Jeff Verdorn. Is that a long enough pause? Yep. Okay, good. And we are uh, in our discussion of 1 Thessalonians. We're wrapping up. This is Lesson 12, if you've been following along. We are uh, right now down to the last verse of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'll repeat it again. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And that's how that chapter ends. Yep. Well, almost ends. Almost ends. Is that the one? Yeah. Okay, so hang on. So we're going to study on... I'd spend a little time here on the word grace. Okay. We have grace is such an amazing idea. It is happens to be Paul's favorite expression at the end of all of his letters. Uh, you go to the end of Romans and he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You go to the end of 1 Corinthians and he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 2 Corinthians, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
Galatians, he says, talks about grace. Ephesians, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you get the the theme here? Mm-hmm. This is one of the most uh, common expressions that Paul has. Uh, Philippians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Colossians, remember my chains, grace be with you. First Thessalonians here right now. Second Thessalonians, we'll get to, he says the same thing. Timothy, first Timothy and Second Timothy, he says, grace be with you. Titus, Philemon, even Hebrews, which is not normally attributed to Paul, but I actually believe it sounds a lot like Paul because Hebrews ends with, guess what? Grace be with you. That's a long study. I actually think that Paul is probably one of the probable candidates of the author of the book of Hebrews. But other books, Peter, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1, 2, 3 John, uh, Revelation, they don't end this way, but Paul ends his letters with grace be with you. He must be reinforcing a very important idea or concept. Seems that grace is very important. In fact, the word grace, um, charis is the Greek word in uh, in Greek. C-H-A-R-I-S. Yes. Yes. And um, charis or charis, it appears over a hundred times in the New Testament in almost every single book of the New Testament. We see the concept of grace. I think if Matthew and Mark don't have the word grace in them, but I think in every other New Testament book, um, Webster defines grace as unmerited favor, um, unearned or unmerited favor. I like that. The Greek word definition is that which affords joy, delight, loving kindness, favor, That is bestowed on someone theologically or biblically. The idea of grace is generally defined as God's favor towards the unworthy or God's benevolence on the undeserving. In other words, we, even though we don't deserve it, are receiving this gift of grace, and it is a gift. It can't be earned. And so that's where we get this idea, if you will, of unmerited grace favor. John Stott says, grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. God has poured out on us a salvation that we are going to talk about by his grace. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is one of the great grace verses in scripture. It says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast. Salvation is this free gift of God. It can't be earned. It's not the results of any kind of work. God gives to those who believe through faith, the verse says, salvation. It's a free gift. It's unmerited favor given upon those who believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's a gift. I did a couple of uh, events called Christmas Christmas gatherings. Christmas ga- gatherings. I have trouble saying Christmas. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know why that is because I, it's not Thanksgiving yet. It, it, well, that may be, but yeah, it's got to go in order. So I've been doing Invisalign for my teeth. I think yeah, I'm going to blame it on that. So these gatherings, <laughs> these <laughs> gatherings happen every year. It's a it's a ministry that started a long time ago by a friend of mine, actually, Joyce Bateman, and it's now actually a worldwide ministry. They're doing these events 
uh, throughout the world. And what the event is simply is a person invites their neighbors to a Christmas gathering to, and, and on the invitation will say a message of hope and a faith will be shared. And someone will be invited to come and share what is the greatest gift of all, speaking of gifts around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. So the host will generally say, I have a gift here. Who would like this gift? And someone says, well, I'll take it. And they hand the gift and whatever the host gets, that was free. It was a free gift, but the person needed to receive the gift. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what salvation is. That is exactly what grace is. It's a free gift from God. He offers it to everybody, but you need to receive it. Now, some will say in this verse, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not the results of work. Some will say that the, that the gift of God is the faith and not salvation. Do you see what I'm saying? Not quite. Some will argue in Christianity that what God has given us, the gift that he has given us, is not salvation through grace, which is what I, how I interpret this okay. passage, but it's the faith itself, that faith is the gift. In other words, God gave you the gift of faith so that you could believe in him. Perfect, and that right. will produce salvation. That will then produce salvation. Okay. They make faith the gift of God instead of salvation being the gift of of God. And and part of this argument is that if it was up to us to have faith, well then faith would be considered a work. And we know that it can't be a work because we just read in Ephesians 2:8 and 9 it's not by works so no one can boast. But if faith was left up to us, that means it's a quote unquote a work. But I want to read Romans 4 1 through 5. Okay. Because I'm going to show definitively that faith is not a work and that what Paul is describing as a gift of God is actually our salvation by grace, not faith. Do you see the distinction? Mm-hmm. Okay, so here we go. read it. Sure. Romans 4, 1 through 5. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works... He had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. One more. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. It's clear Abraham was not justified by works, verse 2, but by faith, by believing. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, verse 3. And then verse 4 says, if you had to work for your salvation in any way, then it's no longer a gift. It would have to be owed to you as just like wages, mm-hmm. Paul says. It would be owed to you. If you had to work for it, then God would be obligated to give you salvation, just like uh, an employer is obligated to give you wages for what you've worked. So the key is, verse 5, the one who does not work but trusts God, their faith is credited as righteousness. That word trust there is the Greek word pistuo, 
and it means to believe or have faith in or to trust. Here it's translated generally in most English Bibles as trust, but it really means to believe. So right here in verse 5, Paul specifically says that the one who does not work but believes God, they are the ones who are saved. Faith is not a work. It's that clear. In fact, God calls people all over Scripture to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And and if that command to believe was a work, well, then God would be commanding everybody to work for their salvation. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we are to do. So John 6 says the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Um, John 20 says, stop doubting Thomas and believe for your salvation. John 20, 31, but these are written so that you may believe. Acts 13 says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. First John 3, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. There's actually a bunch of Old Testaments, too, where God says, Turn to me, all the ends of the earth. Seek the Lord while he can be found. Repent and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Faith is not a work. It is salvation which God gives as unmerited favor by his grace, salvation, to those who who believe. So remember, believing is to put your faith and trust in one, especially for salvation. And if you do that, God pours out his salvation by his grace on all those who believe. So back to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing or of yourself. It is the gift of God, the salvation, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Mm-hmm. It's by grace. Yeah. Jeff, there might be someone in their car right now driving home going, I'm being led to Christ right now hmm. because I'm hearing the truth of the gospel. Well, they're also hearing about this wonderful thing called grace in the Bible. You know, grace is really amazing. Someone needs to write a song about it, I think, you know, amazing grace. Oh, wait, that, Um, yeah, that. Someone has, but it is. I mean, God offers this free gift, just Mm -hmm. like the Christmas gatherings that I described. God is offering, offering every single person in this world a package. That package is salvation. And all you have to do is say yes to Jesus Christ. Yes, Lord, I want to receive your gift of salvation. And he will give it to you Mm -hmm. by his grace. So if you're believing in that right now on your car ride home or as you're sitting in your house or your apartment, wherever you are, if that is what is on your heart and in your head right now, and you want to say, I want to place my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is your moment where you will be born again from above. Mm. And the Holy Spirit will come into your life and transform you. And it will be what the Bible teaches as your moment and your day of being born again. Amen and amen. uh, Let me know if if that was a decision you made and something you want to share with me. I would love to hear from you. 877-933-2484. I would just thrill me to no end if there was someone that God was letting to to the cross and to the empty tomb today. 
and to say, I believe in that, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and he is risen, and I want to put my faith in him. Good word, Bill. Thanks, Jeff. All right, I'm going to take a break. Yeah. Then we'll come back and we'll talk about that God's grace is sufficient. Perfect. Jeff Verdorn is my guest. We're in 1 Thessalonians. This is uh, Lesson 12, so we've been at this for a while. A lot of great teaching on this book, and we're going to be right back. Thank you for joining me today. It's great to spend time with you. I hope you've had a good day. I'm with my friend Jeff Verdorn. I always have a nice pause just to let you know <laughs> his name is not Jeffrey Dorn, but Jeff Verdorn. Thanks, Bill. You're welcome, Arnold. <laughs> Don't you dare. No. All right, we're continuing our study in First Thessalonians, and isn't it great that we are saved by grace? Now let's talk about how grace is sufficient. Yes, yeah, so grace is such plays, you know, this huge role in our salvation, this free gift, but even after we're saved, if we go to 2 Corinthians 12, this is, Paul has a great description uh, that now God's grace is sufficient for us after we've been saved. So Paul, in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is describing, actually, I believe it's himself, this man who was caught up to heaven, verse 2. He saw inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell when he was caught up to heaven, verse 4, he says he would boast of such a man, verse 5, but to keep him from becoming conceited and boasting of this man, of himself, that he went to heaven and saw these great, surpassingly great revelations, he was given a thorn in the flesh, verse 7. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us what this thorn is. Much has been written about it over the years. Some believe that it was a person, a person that followed Paul around who irritated Paul and was kind of a thorn in his flesh. Others believe that it was a physical ailment of some kind, and some believe that it was maybe his poor eyesight. We see in the New Testament that Paul was actually struggling with his eyes, and in Galatians, for example, he says, if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. In Galatians 6, he says, he finishes Galatians with, see what large letters I used to write to you with my own hand. So many believe that Paul was losing his eyesight to some kind of condition or disease, whatever it was, whatever this thorn is, God does not specifically tell us what it is. And I I think there's a reason why. And I think the reason why is so that we can identify with this thorn, whatever our thorn Mm -hmm. happens to be. Um, So whatever it is, whatever your thorn in the flesh is, Paul, by the way, prays three times that God would take it away. But God doesn't take the thorn away. And Paul learns from this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, in in your Bible, those words are actually in red letters. It means that 
the interpreters believe that Jesus himself spoke these words, and that's the context of the passage, that from Jesus, Paul receives this revelation that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul goes on and finishes this part of uh, chapter 12 with, therefore, I will boast about this, about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong, for God's grace is sufficient. And it's sufficient for us. God's salvation by his grace is sufficient for us, Christian. He says that by his divine power, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. And Paul says this in Ephesians 1. He says, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Salvation is enough. His grace is sufficient. I think the church and Christians in general are saved, but then they're looking for the next great thing, the next great experience, the next great whatever it happens Mm -hmm. to be. Some focus on gifts, some focus on, well, some truth or something or some experience that you need to have or some miracle that needs to come your way. Everybody's looking for the next big thing. And I think God is telling us that his grace is sufficient. This salvation that we've received through grace or by grace is sufficient for us. We have received everything we need for life and godliness. We've received the Holy Spirit. We have the power to live a godly life because God's Spirit is dwelling within us. If we keep in step with the Spirit, God says we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5. We have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God's given us his armor, his helmet of salvation, his shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness. We have access to God. We can come before God's throne of grace at any time. Hebrews 4, 6 says, with confidence, Christ is our vine. We are the branches, as we talked about last time. He is our power. He is our strength. He is our source. We just need to abide in him, and that power will work in and through us. God has given us wisdom. He's given us peace. He's given us freedom. He's given us eternal life. He's given us even the breath in our very lungs. He's given us everything we need. In fact, Ephesians says that we have the resurrection power of Christ dwelling within us, and his incomparably in, uh, great power for us who believe the power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all authority, power, and dominion. And that power is at work within us, All right, Paul Jeff, says. we have to hit pause right there and say that again. In other words, what I'm hearing you say, according to Ephesians chapter 1, is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us. The same power that raised Christ from the grave is at work in 
Okay. Yes. That was just worth repeating. <laughs> you know what word I have in my notes here? What? Repeat this. <laughs> did, really? <laughs> I did, and oh. you just repeated it for me. Oh, that's me. fantastic. That is, it yeah. is just amazing. So Romans eight eleven, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies because the spirit lives in you. We have resurrected power, resurrection power in us. He has given us his very life, Christ in you, the hope of glory. When Christ appears, who is your life, Colossians 3 says. In fact, Paul ends Colossians 1, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Okay, Jeff, I'm going to go back to this again because (laughs) I'm not done quite yet. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Yeah. And I read verse 19 and 20. Right. And 21. Right. And I, the power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So think of the Holy Spirit in the tomb raising Jesus from the dead. And the power it took to do do that that is available in us. Amen. Right now. That's why I said repeat this truth because... Well, that's why, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm interrupting. No, 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 you're not. Because you're the one who said, hey, we better repeat this because this is quite a truth. And it's true. And Romans 8 basically says the same thing. And, and then, of course, in Colossians 1, which I just read, that Paul was struggling, what strength? With all of his energy, which so powerfully works in him. So this truth is actually repeated uh, a number of times in Scripture. And it shouldn't surprise us when Christ, who is our life, Scripture says, is, is and the God of the universe is dwelling within us, that means that that power is within us. So what do we need from God to live a holy life? And the answer is nothing We have everything we need for life and godliness. I just read that passage. He's given us all. He's given us himself. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us armor and wisdom and truth, and and it's all within us. And that same resurrection power is at work within us. Christian, you don't need anything to live out this life. It's more a function of are you willing to submit to God? Are you willing to die to yourself and let him live in and through you? Are you going to be that branch that lets the vine bear the fruit in your life? Or are you going to keep trying to produce plastic fruit? God wants to work in and through you. Our job is simply to trust in him, to abide in him. For it is God who works in in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose, Philippians 2.13. I think our simple job is to get out of the way and let him do his good work in us. And I think that's exactly what Jesus did in the garden. And that final night of his earthly ministry, he says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He got out of the way and God worked in and through him. 
John the Baptist said, I must decrease. He must increase. I think Carrie Underwood was right. Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> Live your life in and through me as I trust in you. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Second Peter 1, 3. Mm. As we said, all right, we're going to take uh, one more short break and be back as we continue our study. As we're wrapping up 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 with my friend and Bible teacher, Jeff Verdorn. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. Thank you, Jeff, for this great study on 1 Thessalonians. I know we're going to do our best in the next 10 minutes to wrap up uh, the first uh, book of Thessalonians. I know we've got some thoughts that you've got uh, on grace, and then we're going to do a little uh, recap on the whole the whole book. Yeah, we spent the <laughs> we spent forty five minutes on the last verse. Yeah, I love it of First Thessalonians. But grace is a such a big topic and such an important um, kind of theme within the New Testament. It is, it's literally all over. So, uh, but we were just talking about that this resurrection power is at work in us and God. By his grace, this gift that he's given those who receive him, those who believe in Christ, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. You know, there's a, there's a quote um, that I read a long time ago. It's uh, in a book called Classic Christianity, and it says this, We have simply not come to grips with the fact that it isn't hard to live the Christian life. It's impossible. Only Christ can live it. And that is why our hope is to lean that learn that Jesus Christ did not just come just to get men out of hell and into heaven. He came to get himself out of heaven and into men. But this idea that living the Christian life isn't hard, it's impossible. If you are trying to live a holy and godly life on your own power, it's impossible. Only Christ can do it. So trust in him and he will live his life in and through you. Nicely stated. That's Bob George. Bob George, classic, book, Christianity. classic Christianity. It's a book I I think I got thirty years ago. Yeah, yeah, been around a while. It it has been around, and it's a classic. It really is. It has some great truths in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't quote books that often, actually. I know you so, don't. Yeah. So let's let's recoup. So we're at the end of First Thessalonians. We'll pick up Second Thessalonians next in next session. But I just thought we'd take the last few minutes to recount this uh, this one truth because it's really fascinating. That, and we spent a lot of time on this idea of the rapture of the church. We actually see, as I mentioned in session number one, that the rapture or the hope of the rapture, Paul uh, explains or brings up in every single chapter in First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. So in First. Thessalonians, verse 10, he says that we are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Well, there's a clear description of the rapture of the church. 
In fact, it's a description of a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, and you're going to have to go back, and we spent a lot of time on, on explaining why the Bible points to a rapture that happens prior to the wrath that is going to come upon the earth, the seven-year tribulation period. So I am a, a strong pre-tribulation believer of uh, that the rapture happens before the tribulation period, and there's lots of evidence for it, and we have been discussing that. In chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says, For what is our hope, our joy, or our crown, in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Well, when will we be in glory with Christ? That At the rapture. At the rapture, we receive our glorified bodies, and we will appear with him in glory. And by the way, crowns are mentioned here. One of the things that happens right after the rapture of the church is this thing called the judgment seat of Christ, where we receive our rewards. We receive crowns. This happens at the Bema judgment or the judgment seat of Christ. It's described in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians 5. I hope I got those two references right. Um, But this is when we receive our glorified body. We appear before his judgment seat. We're rewarded for what we've done in the body, and we receive these crowns. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3, verse 13. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all of his holy ones. Well, once again, this is a reference to the rapture of the church. The holy ones that he's bringing are the dead in Christ, the dead in Christ who rise first, which we'll see in the next chapter, actually. And so this reference is when he comes at the rapture for the church. But those are the two groups of people. And the two groups of people are seen very clearly in the reference in chapter 4. So let me read that. Verse 16, starting in 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's the first group of people. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. That's the rapture word. That's where we get the word rapture. The Latin word for being caught up is rapturo. That's where we get this idea of the rapture. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet them in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, this is one of the core rapture passages. We actually spent quite a bit of time on on this passage, in this study, and it's where we get the idea of this rapture that we're going to be caught up. Remember, John 14, Jesus taught about this when he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, but if I go and prepare a place for you, I will certainly come back and take you to be where I am also. That's the rapture. Now, Okay, I was going to talk about the hope that we have because this passage ends with this line, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And that's actually why Paul is referencing the rapture in every single chapter of Thessalonians because the Thessalonians were experiencing great persecution and trials and they were maybe losing hope a little bit. And Paul is telling them about this hope that we have of the rapture. In fact, to Titus, he says, it is our blessed hope, the glorious, glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our blessed hope. 
Chapter 5, and that's why he says encourage one another. Chapter 5, which we did a couple sessions ago, verse 23, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, once again, this is the rapture of the church, and this is where we launched off on our spirit, soul, and body discussion, but now uh, the reference is that this is the rapture at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and starting next time, we will start looking at 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says, On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who believed. What's that? The rapture. And in chapter 2, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, which again is the rapture. So we are actually going to continue with some more discussion of the rapture in chapters 1 and chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians, but we also have other things to talk about as well. <laughs> I appreciate that. Jeff, great study. Uh, so far, I'm loving this uh, deep dive into Thessalonians and I was not aware at the beginning of this study how often times in this book there are references to the rapture. Hmm. Quite fascinating. It's the hope that we have, and that's what Paul was doing. Yeah, it is the hope indeed. All right, well, I'm looking forward to uh, continuing in a couple of weeks in 2 Thessalonians with Jeff Redorn. So I am glad that we have that still to look forward to. So thank you again for all the uh, great work you did on this. Hmm. You bet. Yeah, and I, I I do find it amusing that I stopped you to repeat something, and in your notes was the word repeat. That was great. That was, that was a, a classic. Very fun moment. It Just, was. Uh, really, really fun. So thanks again, and I will see you Thursday on Guy Talk. Sounds good. All right, and you want to nominate your community for a very special faith radio event featuring, featuring our own Carmen LeBird. You can do that. Carmen is very passionate about tilling the soil of cultural conversations of the day, and equipping Christians with tools to share Christ. You can find out more about doing that at MyFaithRadio.com. That's our show for the day. Look forward to being with you tomorrow. Have a great night, and I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.